Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. I'm Melanie. And I'm Cassie. We're here to help you relax and unwind. It's time for candles, bubbles, wine, and of course, a tale of true crime. So go on, soakers. Settle into the tub. Let your muscles relax and your heart race as we dive into Bath and Body Parts. episode contains depictions of violence against children. And we here at Bath and Body Parts are very cautious about this particular subject, especially lately. So please use your discretion upon listening. On the morning of November 6th, 2001, a man was walking in Keystone Park in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. To his horror, he stumbled across a body. He immediately called the police. The body was male with multiple gunshot wounds found near a car. He was wearing scrubs. Meanwhile, the doctors and employees at a local private practice were growing increasingly worried. Their colleague, Andrew Bagby, had not shown up to work that morning. And this was very unlike him. So many of them were already starting to get the suspicion that something bad had happened. And when they saw the news that said a body had been found in the park wearing scrubs, that suspicion grew stronger. All they could do was wait for the news that their friend and colleague, Andrew, was dead. Andrew Bagby was described by many people as charismatic, selfless, kind, caring, laid back. You know, he was short in stature, but a giant of a man. He was intelligent. And, you know, this happens a lot when someone dies. You know, everybody talks about them with all these glowing words. But there are so many people that talk about Andrew this way. It's clear that it's not just because he's gone. It's because he was part of their life, you know, even when he was there. And I think that this is an interesting case because we have so much footage of Andrew gathered. Yes. That we can see this. You can see the kind of person he is. You can see his outgoing charismatic nature and the way he interacts with people. Yeah. He was the only child of Kathleen and David Bagby, and he grew up in Silicon Valley with a group of friends who became really bonded for life. There was Chris and Andrew, Matt, Michelle, John, Olivier, Heather, and the director of the documentary, Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about his father. And that director is Kurt, who was one of Andrew's best friends. And just to talk about the documentary for a second, we watch a lot of true crime documentaries. We watch a lot of Dateline and Snapped and specials and, you know, Investigation Discovery and a lot of even YouTube and everything. And a a lot of our content that we watch is very well made. It's beautiful. It's touching. But this documentary in particular is probably one of the most poignant and emotional documentaries I've ever watched. What do you think? Yes, it really is very personal and it's a little bit different than a lot of true crime documentaries because, yes, you know, it's a little bit light on the actual case. Yes. Because it's 
purpose is to tell Andrew's story. And Kurt and Andrew had grown up making all of these films and you get to see all of that, like little clips of all of it. And like they're growing up. You really feel like you're watching his life as if you were watching family videos and you are like seeing someone who you feel like you kind of get to know. And it's kind of a refreshing, you know, just like a breath of fresh air for the true yes. crime documentary world. I yeah. feel like because we talk sometimes about that. we don't get any emphasis yes. on the victims at all, and this is all emphasis on the victim, which is really very nice. Yes, but also just extremely emotional. So super, super emotional. Yeah, I posted an Instagram story like of me crying after watching it, and. I didn't say the name of the documentary, but I had like four or five people message me and say, was it Dear Zachary? Because they were like, this is the most devastating thing I've ever seen. And I will just give one quick little side note about the film. If you are somebody who gets very overstimulated, it was extremely triggering for me because... yes. The way that he chooses to lay over yes. the voices talking on top of each yes, other yes, yes. is something that, as a new mom, I'm in sensory overload all the time. Oh, yes. And I had to actually fast forward through it a little bit because it was so... That's a really good point. Like, it was just too much noise and too much pressure. So just be warned if you are somebody who maybe is neurodivergent yep. or experiences sensory overload or overstimulation. It, it was a lot. So I, had, I did have to mute it a few times and just kind of watch the subtitle. Yes, that is a, that's a great... Great point. Well, Kurt, the director of the documentary, grew up making movies with his friends and he cast Andrew in every single one of his movies. And so, like Cassie said, we have all of this footage of him, you know, when he's acting and it's so adorable. Like, you know, I don't know if you like made any videos with your friends when you were like in high school or anything. This is before YouTube, you know, before all of these things, but like we would sometimes... <laughs> we, we had a giant <laughs> camcorder. Yes, giant. And just like looking at those, you know, it's kind of adorable to see somebody, you know, just being silly. And in the documentary, Kurt, you know, talks about why he made this documentary, Dear Zachary. And he said the first reason was that he wanted to make one more movie with Andrew. And right then and there, I was just crying. I was like, that's beautiful. And he also said that he wanted to travel to talk to anyone who knew Andrew and he wanted to film them to preserve their memories. And I just feel like that's the most pure of intentions to make this documentary. And like we said, it's very different. And Kurt actually said that one of the things that Andrew liked about being in his movies was that he would often get to play the bad guy. And it gave him, you know, this freedom to act tough and, you know, smoke cigarettes and even curse when his parents were around. And he was actually very, you know, conservative. He was an Eagle Scout at the age of 15. His parents were like, he was religious, you know, so he was very conservative. But in his movies, he got to kind of you know, let loose a little bit. And I actually think it's hilarious that Kurt even invited Andrew's parents, David and Kathleen, to be in some of his movies. Mm -hmm. And like, both of them are so like, well-spoken and reserved people, but it's just really funny to see. (laughs) And, you know, Andrew really believed in Kurt as a filmmaker and even invested money into his filmmaking career. So it was like a mutually beneficial thing. Now, Andrew's mom worked in the medical field, and it was always his dream to follow in her footsteps. 
but he did not get an offer to attend medical school after his first year, which was a big disappointment to him. But he didn't seem to take it as a huge blow to his confidence or anything. Right. He was just like, okay, I'm going to keep applying it and keep applying. And yes. his ex-fiance, Heather, brought him an application to medical school at Memorial University of Newfoundland in Canada. And he was accepted there. Now, at this time, he was engaged to Heather, but they would later break up. And when they broke up, it was very hard for Andrew, and this was a big blow to his confidence. He had a hard time moving on. He started to feel like he couldn't find anybody like Heather. And, you know, Heather started dating other people, and it, it was a tough time for him. For sure. But after a while, he did start telling his friends that he was dating someone, and that someone was Dr. Shirley Turner. Now, he warned them that there was an age difference, but wasn't necessarily forthcoming at first about how big the age difference was. She was 12 years older than him. So she was 40 and he was 28. And you know, like, age gaps in relationships. You can have a very successful, healthy, beautiful relationship with someone who is of a different age than you. And it's just interesting because he almost didn't want to say at first that there was that big difference. But it's very clear, even just looking at photos of them, that she was older than him. You can just see that. Yes. And, you know, I know people that are in wonderful relationships with age gaps bigger than that. Oh, yeah. It's not so much the number as it is sort of the phase of life. Sure. And... And in some ways, they kind of were in the same phase of life because they were in medical school together. Right. But it was something that was a little bit jarring for his friends, and it was off-putting to them. Yeah. Not necessarily the age difference, but sort of the behavior and the way that the age difference played out. Yes, the dynamics. Yes. Now we're going to get into some background on Shirley Turner. So she was from Kansas, but had moved to Newfoundland with her mother after her parents divorced. And she went to med school at Memorial University. In 1981, she got pregnant and married the baby's father. And she gave birth to a baby boy and later had a daughter. She actually then started having an affair with a former ex-boyfriend of hers. And after divorcing her husband, she married that former ex-boyfriend. And she soon had another daughter with him. In 1993, one of the boarders in Shirley's home told his therapist that he had seen Shirley abuse her children. So the therapist reported this and social services was called in. Now, the children told the social workers that their mother would often spank them and hit them with a belt. But when Shirley's husband vouched for her and said that she only used appropriate discipline and only threatened the children with a belt, the case was closed. Now, it's important to note that although social services was called for her, she herself was actually never interviewed during the investigation of that case. Like, they talked to her husband. I don't even understand that. And you you and I have had the discussion before that we we have had a very complex relationship with social services in the past as teachers. Of course. You know, I've seen people called in for things that were ridiculous. I've seen people called in for things that were serious that never got taken seriously. Yep. But this just seems like a big oversight. Yes, like I feel like that should be like basic 
number one rule, if it involves the person, talk to the person and not just their spouse or, you know, like, yeah. So I, and if mm, the children are saying one thing right. and the spouse is saying one thing, why are you automatically just going to believe the spouse? And you're not even going to talk to her to see right. if she says something different, if the stories don't match. I'm, right. And yeah. so, you know, like, yeah, I could continue talking about that, but that would turn into a much different case. We won't go down the rabbit hole. When Shirley and her husband divorced, she then sent her children to live with their fathers. So her first two children were living with her first ex-husband, and then her third child was living with her most recent ex. Now, Shirley moved on and started dating other people. She's going to medical school. She's living her life. And she ended up getting together with a long-term boyfriend. But in 1999, he broke up with her. He said that she took to calling him repeatedly and even stayed in his house for a month after he let her in to try and sort of calm her down and calm the situation down. And she just refused to leave. And then upon returning home from a work trip, Shirley attempted suicide by ingesting multiple medications and was found in a long black dress holding a dozen roses and two letters, one of which was a suicide note. And like that detail of like holding the roses in the long black dress, I feel like gives you a very interesting insight into her as a person. Yeah. Just that little flair for the drama and the, the, very cinematic scene almost, you know? So I, I don't often go into sort of personal stories about my my past marriage, but uh, my ex-husband was very much someone who had this flair for the dramatic. And I distinctly <laughs> remember that after I left him, he took his wedding ring and he left it on the pillow. <laughs> and I just remember seeing it and laughing a bit hysterically. It was it was very over the top. And that's what that reminds me of. It's yes. like, you think your life is a movie. Yes. That's the way I describe yes. it. You You're, don't feel like it's real. I remember yeah. this experience um, with your ex-husband. And to this day, it doesn't seem real. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like something that a real person does. Yes. You know, this whole holding roses and... In your long black flowy dress. Like, mm, yes. yeah, yeah. Now, Shirley continued attending medical school in Newfoundland after that. And her supervising physician said that she would respond to criticism very negatively. She would yell, cry, accuse him of mistreating her and that she was just very manipulative. She ended up being put in a remedial program at med school, and apparently she falsified clinical reports, but still finished the program and was certified to practice. I mean... Now, I'm assuming that they maybe discovered this later down the line. (laughs) They're not just like, we know you faked this. Good job. Here you go. (laughs) Andrew and Shirley met in medical school in 1999, the year before she graduated. So she's kind of coming off the tail end of this sure. long relationship around this time, too. Now, when Andrew and Shirley started dating, his friends were happy at first that he had found someone, especially having taken the breakup with Heather so hard. And Heather was very happy yes. to hear that he had moved on. But once they met Shirley, they weren't really as happy with the relationship. And like they just said she was a lot different than someone that they would have pictured Andrew going for. And, you know, opposites can attract. You can be in a relationship with someone who is so different from you. And, you know, I think that 
you and your husband and me and my husband are very different from our spouses, right? But it works. You have a certain, you know, compatibility, some chemistry, you know, all of those things. But Shirley would make like sexually suggestive comments in front of Andrew's friends and like... And there's some footage of them at parties together and she is all over him, but not in All a, over him. It's like she's all over him, but he's not... Yes. ...receptive to yes. it. So it's not like they're just very intimate, like physical They're not super touchy. It's not mutual in the footage. And like... It, oh, it, and so then watching it makes you feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know? And I cannot imagine what that was like in person. Plus, if you're adding in these, like, sexually suggestive comments. And, like, when you're with friends, yes, you can make sexual jokes or whatever. I mean, we joke about, you know, whatever. But especially if you're a new girlfriend or a new... Right, if you're like, meeting yeah, your partner's friends, that's probably not the way you're going to conduct yourself. Maybe you want to, like, put on a better, you know better first impression types of thing. Until you read the room at least and see what they're comfortable <laughs> right, with. Right. And Shirley, she would even call Heather. So she would call Andrew's ex-fiance Heather and tell her about their sex life in detail. But it's not necessary. Just don't do that. And you know, at this point in Andrew's life, like he didn't have a huge self-confidence in his looks or his ability to get a girlfriend. And so a friend even told him like, you could do better than dating someone like Shirley. And he replied, quote, no, I can't. And he was cute. You know, he was like, he was attractive. It's sad. After med school graduation, he went to Syracuse, New York for residency. And there, it just wasn't what he wanted. It was a surgery residency, and so it was extremely stressful. He was very far away from his family and from his friends, and it just wasn't what he wanted. And at this time, Shirley went to Council Bluffs, Iowa. So they were doing the long-distance relationship thing. And, you know, Andrew was struggling with his residency, and it was hard, and he was busy, and he was just not having a good time. But it did seem like his relationship with Shirley was kind of like that you know, that light or that something to look forward to that is always nice when you are having a stressful time if you have a friend or a spouse or a partner or whatever to just like, you know, let loose and be not stressed for a little while. Mm -hmm. It is really nice. Yeah. Now, the surgery residency revealed to Andrew that he really did not want to be a surgeon. And so instead, he transferred to a family practice residency in Latrobe, Pennsylvania in the summer of 2001. And this is where he really felt like he had found what he wanted to do. It also seemed like with this, he was kind of pulling away from Shirley a little bit. There was a friend's wedding and he actually didn't invite her to come with him. And so while he was at the wedding for his friend, she actually called him repeatedly both on his cell phone and on his home phone, knowing that he wasn't there. And she left about 30 messages. If you're leaving me 30 messages, like I'm thinking it is an emergency life or death situation. Right. You know, especially if you're calling my home phone knowing that I'm not going to be at home. I don't know about that. Yeah. 
But Andrew had actually invited her previously to another wedding that was going to happen that October. And so they did attend that wedding together. And there is footage of them at this wedding reception where they're dancing. And again, she's like wrapping her arms and legs around him. And she even accused one of his school friends that was a girl of hitting on him when she had asked Andrew if he wanted a drink. She was like, oh, so now you're hitting on the best man. And she's there with her spouse or her long-term partner. Like she's, and like she's a friend of it. So it was just not a good look at all for that wedding at all. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. Now, this is kind of a very chaotic time in Shirley and Andrew's relationship, and it really does seem like he had clung to this yes. relationship when things were really bad. But as his life is starting to round out and he's discovering all these yes. new things that he likes and this things that he's really good at and he's gaining confidence and he's making friends yes. in this new town, he is over the relationship essentially. And she yeah. Yeah. is clinging, clinging, clinging. You know, we've got all these messages. She even ended up faking a pregnancy. She told him she was pregnant and then confessed that she had lied about it. And he yeah. felt, okay, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. We're going to end That's enough this. right there. Yep. So on Saturday, November 3rd, 2001, he broke up with her for good and took her to the airport, put her on a plane back to Iowa. A 1,000 mile difference. Let's bear that in mind. Two days later, the 5th, very early in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, Shirley showed up at Andrew's house. Like, she had driven the 16 hours back. This reminds me of that lady that was an astronaut. Do you remember that story? And she was an astronaut and she drove cross country like wearing Depends. Yes. To like, you know, it reminds me of that. Like, why? This is not good. Not at all. No. And I'm pretty sure that would set off alarm bells for anybody. Yes. Andrew told his friend Clark what happened. And Clark basically says, uh, hey, you should call the police because this is bonkers. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew just didn't think that it was warranted. He felt like he could smooth things over. Right. It's fine. She just needs closure. I can handle this. Now, Clark said, do not meet her in private. Don't do it. And Andrew, again, it's not a big deal. It's fine. I'll take care of this. So he said he was going to meet Shirley at 6 p.m. And by 7.30, he would be with Clark at his house drinking beer. Now, Andrew was extremely punctual. And he didn't show up. 7.30, he didn't show up at 8. He didn't show up at 9. And Clark is really starting to think that something's wrong by now. Yep. Again, this never, ever happens. And the next morning was when Andrew did not show up for work. And everybody at work, same thing. This is not like Andrew. This is something is going on. He's always on time. Now, after hearing the news about the man in scrubs, of course, his coworkers all gathered in the conference room. It was a very emotional time because they kind of all know that it's going to be him. And then they were told that Andrew was dead. And Clark immediately told the police that he knew who had done it because Shirley had been in town and he was going to meet her that evening. I mean, yeah. I cannot imagine 
losing a coworker, much less someone that I was close with, especially after hearing that someone had driven 16 hours in two days. Like, oh, that is so, so much. And I'm really glad that Clark went to the police and told them about this instead of like holding that back. Now, Kathleen and David, Andrew's parents, were living in California. And they were called and they were told that their son was dead under suspicious circumstances. And so they flew out right away. And remember, Andrew was an only child and his family was very close. And in the documentary, David, his dad, actually said that they, you know, they were planning to go and retrieve Andrew's body and get everything organized and then come home and kill themselves because their entire reason for living was now gone. And I think part of what I also appreciated about this documentary is that I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that so honestly and so openly, even though I feel like that is something that people in that situation might think. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I had ever heard that and it was so vulnerable. So that's kind of where their mental state was at. So it's devastating to them, like very, very, very traumatic and awful. So the police picked them up at the airport and took them to identify the body. And in the meantime, the police were also investigating Andrew's death with Shirley as the prime suspect due to Clark's statement and other statements that they had gathered from friends. Andrew was shot five times in his face, his chest, his buttocks, and the back of the head, as well as receiving blunt force trauma to the head. And there was also an unspent round found at the scene. And as it turned out, Shirley's gun had a habit of ejecting live rounds. Shirley's car had also been spotted in Keystone Park that evening. And when police confronted her, she denied that she had been to see Andrew. She claimed that she had been in Iowa sick in bed. And she even left a message on Andrew's voicemail, you know, saying that she hadn't seen him in a few days and that she was just checking in. And I don't know what she was thinking because this is 2001. She should have already known about cell phone record existence. Right? And over the next two weeks, investigators did check her cell phone records. And unsurprisingly, that was definitely a lie because her cell phone pinged in Chicago, Indiana, and then also from Pennsylvania on the day he was murdered. So not sick in bed. Not sick in bed. <laughs> not sick in bed. And then going along the opposite way, right, back to Iowa after he was killed. So when police confronted her about the cell phone evidence, she changed her story. She said she'd come into town to see Andrew and had given him the gun, which he put in his trunk. Which I feel like you're not going to come up with like a better story. That's the story that you're going to go with. So you've already lied. Okay. And then you're like, well, actually, um, I just drove 16 hours to give him a gun. Why? I <laughs> have no idea. <sighs> You'd think that given her dramatic nature, she could have come up with a more compelling story. Right. Yes. Yes. Now, investigators searched Shirley's home and found a box of condoms that she'd stolen from Andrew's apartment the night of the breakup and found printed out directions to Latrobe because that was she map quested GPS. it. She, <laughs> she map quested it. and printed the directions to Latrobe. So way to cover your tracks there, Shirley. An arrest warrant was issued, but she fled to Newfoundland before she could be arrested, which put a 
big kinkin' thing. Yeah, she had dual citizenship, yeah. so she could go to Canada, no problem. Now, you know, David and Kathleen are in Latrobe. They're devastated. They don't have any family there. But Andrew's friends that he worked with and that he knew there in Latrobe were really helpful and supportive of David and Kathleen, and they would bring them meals and they would just kind of sit and visit with them. And I'm sure that they appreciated that so much. At Andrew's funeral, Kurt delivered a really beautiful eulogy. And in it, he addressed David and Kathleen saying that the group of friends who had grown up together with Andrew viewed them as parents as well and said to them, quote, you still have children. And when I saw that, I was a big pile of tears because that's the most touching thing I think could have been said to them. Yeah. You know. As a mom watching David and Kathleen in the documentary, it's really, really hard. Yes. It is like if anyone's interested in watching, it's on Amazon Prime. Just be prepared for how emotional it is. Cause yeah. Yeah. A memorial service was held in Newfoundland. And during that memorial service, Shirley, you know, she came and she was sobbing loudly. And at the service, she went up to Heather and said awful things to her like, you're not, you were never as important in Andrew's life as I was. Weird. Okay. And she would also email Heather a lot of, you know, awful things. So she just really seemed quite hung up on Heather which it's interesting because like Heather was still friends with Andrew, but there was no romantic interest there anymore at all. And so... Yeah, we don't know what happened with the breakup, but whatever it was, it seemed like the door was definitely closed yes. on continuing the relationship. Yeah. But they were they were lifelong friends, you know? They, yes. So they're not going to just stop being friends. It's just very interesting that she would like focus and hone in on her. So the police in Canada and Pennsylvania were working together to move the arrest forward. And she was put under surveillance in Canada. On December 2nd, Canadian police searched Shirley's trash and found an ultrasound picture from a few days before. Even though she had thought she was faking a pregnancy, it turns out that she was indeed pregnant and just didn't know it yet. On December 12th, 2001, Shirley was charged with murder and let out on bail the same day. She was supposed to pay $75,000 in sureties, and she did. 65000 of this came from her personal psychiatrist, Dr. John Doucette. And if you have ever seen Twin Peaks, to me, he looks like Dr. Jacoby, but like way worse. <laughs> I just don't understand how anybody would think that that is ethical. Right. Yes. I feel like that's a huge breach. I don't know. Like, we never hear that they were having an affair or anything, but I'm but like, there's some, why something. Something. Imagine being you one of do that. Dr. John Doucette's other clients. <laughs> like, he's just paying $65,000 for Shirley. Like, like, hey, bud, can you pay off my student loans? <laughs> <laughs> right? And, you know, she was told to turn in her passports and to not contact Andrew's family or friends. And she was just able to walk around free in Newfoundland, which really pissed people off who loved Andrew. I'm pissed off that that happened, you know? 
On February 7th, 2002, Kurt received a call that Shirley had held a press conference stating that she was four months pregnant with Andrew's baby. And David and Kathleen said that if it was proven to be Andrew's baby, they were going to sue for custody. So now Kurt said that the documentary had kind of shifted in the focus. Like he, instead of just wanting to preserve Andrew's memories, he wanted to make this for Andrew's child. He wanted Andrew's child to be able to get to know the dad that they were never going to get to know in real life. He wanted to facilitate that relationship. And I, again, so pure of intentions, you know, just... And I just think of David and Kathleen finding out that Shirley's pregnant and that had to be so many emotions. So conflicting. Like, oh, I, mm, yeah. So David and Kathleen uprooted their life. They quit their jobs, they sold their house, and they moved to Newfoundland to fight for the child. And again, this speaks to the types of people that they are. They were like, okay, at this point, they don't even know if it's really Andrews and they're, they're going. They're going to go. They're action-oriented people. So Jacqueline Brazil was hired by them as a lawyer to ensure their rights and that the baby's rights were upheld. And Jacqueline says that she took an instant liking to them. And it's really hard not to, in my opinion. Now, Canadian family law is notoriously slow. They were told, David and Kathleen were told, like, be aware. It's really slow. And it really, really was. They went through so many court appearances that were literally just scheduling the next court appearance. So like they would go in May and then in that session in May, it would say, okay, our next session will be June 30th. You know, like what was the point? It could have been an email, you know? And I think even in America, you see this with family courts sometimes because it reminds me of the Recky case. Yes. Back in episodes 10 and 11, there were a lot of court dates. And granted, there were some other factors going on there. Like sure, one person just not showing up to their court appearances. (laughs) But it was lots of, okay, we're scheduling this, we're scheduling this, we're scheduling this. And I I imagine that's so infuriating, right? Like, oh. But David and Kathleen were settling into their new community and they easily made friends in the medical and legal communities and even at a church. And they attended St. Michael's Parish. And this seems like a very tight-knit town. Yes. You know, kind of like a... Small town feel. It's not necessarily a tiny town, no, but it, I it's think that kind of enclosed, like everybody is yes. kind of here and we know each other. They said that like the space is as big as part of California. Like it's huge, but there's only like 530,000 people that live there. So it has that small town kind of vibe. It's also learning about Canada and this particular area, it's very much isolated. Like mm-hmm. you yes. you have to, you know, get a ferry boat or an airplane to leave. And so it's not super accessible, but because of that, the community seems very tight-knit. And that, Soakers, is where we're going to end today's episode. Now, trust me when I tell you that this case gets more devastating, more heartbreaking, and more infuriating. If you're a patron, you can go ahead and listen to part two right away. 
Otherwise, tune in with us next week to hear the rest of the tale. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. Bye. Bye. For some Bath and Body Parts merch, snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.